Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. Fall is approaching, and we at Deep State Radio have been busier than ever, bringing you the latest news and analysis of the foreign and domestic policy stories that matter most. Members now receive more content than ever, as we've expanded our content and bonus offerings to include all shows in the network. Members also receive an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. And this fall, we will expand our offerings further with several seasonal projects in the works. To celebrate, we're offering membership at just $5 per month. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promotion code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash bye. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another special edition of the podcast. You know that whenever we find a book we think that you ought to read, then we sit down with the author and we talk about the book. Today we're especially pleased to have with us David Enrich, who is the business investigations editor of the New York Times and author of the best-selling book, Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an Epic Trail of Destruction. More on that in a moment. His new book is called Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice. Now, David, I'm sure you think we are extremely powerful podcast for having arranged this conversation as we did to fall on the day that Letitia James announced her, her her lawsuit against Donald Trump, which seems apposite to a lot of your work and both of your books. And so I'd be remiss if I did not start there. You've been on this beat for a while. What's your reaction? Well, I think it's at once not surprising because Tisha James has had this investigation going for a while and everyone's known about it. And also just a very stark and amazing reminder of just the immense legal peril that the former president now finds himself in. And it's the greatest legal threat, all of this stuff combined, whether it's the Tish James lawsuit or the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation or the criminal investigation down in Georgia on election interference. He faces himself. He, He faces this tsunami of real clear and present legal dangers and doesn't have the type of A-list legal team in his corner that you might think a former president would have. So I imagine, while this is not a surprise to anyone in Trump world, it is a pretty sobering reminder that these are tricky, tough times for him. Well, you know, you bring up a point, which, again, is directly relevant to your book, when you say the president doesn't have the kind of A-list legal team available to him that you might think he did or or that he might have had at another time in his life. And, you know, I think one of the keys to both of your books, a lot of the work you've done and a lot of this story is that for people in America of a certain class, 
the laws don't apply if you have good enough lawyers. If you have the ability to defend yourself, drag things out, challenge things, do all the techniques that lawyers enable people to do. Donald Trump's been able to do this for a long, long time, but some things have changed in the past few years. First of all, do you accept the premise? And secondly, can you characterize the change? Yeah, I do accept the premise. And it, look, Trump has obviously become, at least in much of mainstream society, I think a bit of a pariah, right? I and mean, there is, during his presidency and during his campaigns, there are a lot of people, obviously on the left, found much of his rhetoric distasteful and at times alarming. But what's changed is that he has become someone that is not, it's not just that he's conservative or it's not just that he says kind of wild things. It's that he was involved in an attempt to subvert and overthrow an election. And that's a not a good look for anyone. It, to me, the interesting thing is obviously I've focused on the law from Jones Day and Servants of the Damned, but it, there's a whole network of reputable legal institutions, not to mention banks, that were willing over a long period of time and hold their noses and do business with him. And in a fairly short period of time, and in two years, less than two years, that's no longer the case. And Jones Day, while they're still receiving some payments from various Trump campaign committees and political action committees and things like that, as far as I can tell, is not currently engaged in ongoing work. They're certainly not listed as the defense lawyers in any of these multiple investigations he's facing. Deutsche Bank, which is the one that Tish James in her lawsuit today alleges was defrauded by Trump, has stopped working with him. So he finds himself kind of going for the scraps, whether that means people that are willing to lend him money or institutions that will lend him money or those that will represent him in court. And I, I just think it's such an, ex, you know, we've all lost sight of this a little bit maybe because we've been so barraged by this kind of news for the past five years. But it really is a remarkable place for a former president of the United States to find himself in, where he has kind of been become a bit untouchable by the mainstream legal and financial worlds. Well, so talk about that in the context of the premise of your book, because clearly all of your friends now feel you're a genius, or more than they may have in the past, for the timing of the book, and given when this has come out. And indeed, even before this case today, there were stories about maybe he has one competent lawyer, but he paid him in advance. You know, and a lot of the, a lot of the other lawyers are, are are not seen as competent. You talk about a kind of a, I don't know if it's fair to call it this, but I'm gonna a kind of a demi mond of legal advisors in the world who are kind of guns for hire, who are responsible for a lot of white collar organizations getting away with a lot of stuff. You know, the stuff. Letitia James was talking about today, saying, you know, in this country, the rich don't get it away. Well, of course they do. And then you zero in among those on a very kind of white shoe law firm, Jones Day, that became home to Don McGann, who became the president's chief counsel. What about this world drew you to it? And what about this law firm made it the centerpiece? I've been covering business and finance for first the Wall Street Journal and then the New York Times for a long time. And basically every time I cover a big business scandal of any sort, there are these giant law firms lurking in the background. And one of the dirty little secrets about the media in covering these stories is that we spend a lot of time 
on the phone or meeting with the partners of these law firms who are obviously representing their clients, but also representing themselves. And in doing so, they dish a lot to us. They provide us really, at times, very telling glimpses of their clients. They provide documents sometimes. They're good sources. And I've always been kind of puzzled or fascinated by the role that these firms are playing behind the scenes and also the role that these law firms are playing in kind of massaging the media. And one of the effects of that I've noticed is that with some notable exceptions, the mainstream media does not write about law firms as big business. They write about them as accessories and as peripheral to the main stories, normally the way the media, including myself historically, has treated these law firms. And I think that's been a mistake. Uh, and I was, you know, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. The Jones Day alone generates more than $2 billion a year in revenue and others are even bigger. And so I've been kind of looking for a while to attack this topic in a book because I think the legal industry really has gotten away for many years without the kind of intense outside scrutiny that any other industry would face. And I think that is in general healthy for companies and industries and a well-informed public. And and then in 2020, I noticed that Jones Day, I just got woken up to the fact that Jones Day, which is this old Midwestern law firm that is not super sexy, had been doing an enormous amount of work for the Trump campaign and that its once and future lawyers were all over the Trump administration. And then as the election happened and all of the stuff around that, I just kind of thought that maybe this was the right opportunity to kind of marry my long-term fascination with these giant law firms with the fact that it is a very kind of precarious moment for our democracy. There was a giant corporate law firm in Trump's corner. And it, so that's basically the jumping off point for me. And that's how I ended up focusing on Jones Day as kind of the vehicle to tell the story about how the legal industry has, well, how, really how it became an industry instead of just a profession. And the way you tell the story of the book, there are a couple of main characters. They weren't with the firm. They joined the firm. Around the time Trump is in his ascendancy, they're drawn into the Trump campaign. And so Jones Day becomes in the middle of a lot of this stuff. But then they leave. So they, it, it has a kind of a story arc that sort of matches the story arc of a lot of people who've dealt with Trump. Can you explain that sort of origin story and how it ended up? So Jones Day was founded 1893 in Cleveland for almost all of its existence. It was just a big, aggressive corporate litigation firm. And starting in the early 2000s, the new guy who was running the firm named Steve Brogan, he was very conservative and increasingly kind of put that ideological stamp on some of the people he was hiring and some of the clients and causes that the firm took on. So it was Jones Day was the leading law firm fighting Obamacare in a bunch of lawsuits during the Obama administration. In 2014, the firm decided to hire a bunch of hotshot Republican lawyers from another law firm. And the reason they were hired was to start inside Jones Day, a new election law and political law practice that was focused on helping Republicans win elections. And the two main people they hired, there were a bunch of others as well, but the two big guys were, one was Ben Ginsburg, who is you know, one of the country's leading Republican election lawyers. The other was Don McGahn. This was at the end of 2014. By early 2015, there were a bunch of Republicans who were kind of raising their hands tentatively to express interest in running for president in 2016. And Jones Day and McGahn and Ginsburg in particular became the one of the places that a lot of these candidates were gravitating towards. So Jones Day started representing Chris Christie, Scott Walker, Rick Perry. 
And then along came Trump and McGahn agreed to take Trump on as a client very early on in early 2015 at a time when he really lacked any credibility with the Republican mainstream and certainly the conservative mainstream. And McGahn and Jones Day went on to play in the campaign a really leading role, helping him build credibility with the Republican establishment and hosting events on his behalf, helping him drop a list of potential judicial nominees that he would pick from to fill Scalia's seat on the Supreme Court. And then Trump, of course, wins in 2016. And one of his first tires is that he announces he will take Don McGahn from Jones Day and bring him on as his first White House counsel. And McGahn, instead of just saying, sure, I'd love to, extracts basically a promise from Trump that he, McGahn, alone will have power within the White House to decide not only which Supreme Court nominees the White House put forward, but he'll be in charge of overall judicial selection for the White House, all sorts of federal, lower federal courts as well. And Trump agrees to that. And so McGahn arrives in the White House and just becomes immensely powerful. I mean, he single-handedly gets to decide who the White House is going to put forward for these for judicial seats all over the country. And by and large, those are people that are picked kind of straight from the Federalist Society website, essentially. And this was the beginning in early 2017 of this huge exodus of talent that went from Jones Day into the Trump administration. And there's McGahn, of course, he brought, you know, maybe six or eight or 10 people with him into the White House counsel's office. There's a couple other people elsewhere in the White House. The upper echelons of the Justice Department were dominated by Jones Day lawyers, including Noel Francisco, who was Trump's first solicitor general. There were uh, former Jones Day lawyers at the near the top of the Commerce Department, a bunch of other regulatory agencies. And ultimately, there were a number of Jones Day lawyers who were picked by McGahn and his crew in the White House for nominations to join various federal courts all over the country. And by the end of 2018, early 2019, some of the luster of this new powerful job I think was wearing off for McGahn, who was becoming increasingly worried about his own legal jeopardy as he worked for Trump. And so he returned to Jones Day. And that was kind of the beginning of this reverse exodus, where all these people who had worked in the Trump administration either returned to Jones Day or came to Jones Day for the first time. And so the firm went from being the source of talent and manpower in the Trump administration to kind of a refuge for all these veterans of the Trump administration who've given a lot of the very polarizing and controversial work that they've been doing in the administration, I think would have been unwelcome at a lot of other big law firms. And so that's where Jones Day is now. And it's probably the leading place, the leading home for former Trump administration officials. And I suspect that if there is another Republican, Trump or someone else who wins the White House in 2024, they will be going right back into the federal government. Yeah, I thought I was struck in in one way that the story of McGahn is kind of the story of the Republican establishment in the sense that you said, well, you know, Trump's going to win. He could help us. He can help us advance our Federalist Society agenda. And I'm going to hold my nose about all the other stuff. And so he goes in and, you know, it leads to certain three Supreme Court justices pointed sort of in this mold but then realizes this is kind of a deal with the devil. And he gets out before it gets on him, at least as far as we know he gets out before it gets on him. I think, again, and to his credit, I guess, was he's one of the few people in the White House who was actually actively standing up to Trump and fighting him on things. And it was cooperating with Mueller. 
And I think that is, you draw pretty much a direct straight line between that cooperation and that at times confrontational attitude and him having a falling out with Trump. The strange thing to me in reporting on the role that McGahn played and the role that Jones Day has played is that I would have thought that given the falling out that McGahn and Trump had and the fact that McGahn clearly came to view Trump as toxic, that that would have, when when McGahn returned to Jones Day in early 2019, that that would have had some bearing on the way that the firm was handling the Trump campaign, which at that point remained a Jones Day client. And McGahn had become a very vocal, or at least privately vocal, I think, critic of Trump. And there were other people inside the law firm at a very senior level, including Ben Ginsburg, who was the one who'd come over with McGahn years earlier to Jones Day, and who was the point person for the Trump campaign at that point. And they, Ginsburg had also become very vocal internally about his concerns, especially in 2020, about the rhetoric that Trump was using, about the risks of a tainted election, and you know, him railing against the use of mail-in ballots during a pandemic and things like that. And yet, Ginsburg expressed those concerns of the food chain. I presume McGann did too, although I don't know that for a fact. And, and yet, Jones Day remains in bed with this client, even though, even when I think a lot of other people would have said, you know what, this is not the same as us ditching a client who's on trial for murder, or is even in civil litigation. This is a client that is, in some ways, using rhetoric that threatens the underpinning of American democracy. And there's a line we have to draw. And that was a line that, at least as far as I can tell, and certainly in public, was never drawn. In some respects, it was a line that was crossed as long as it suited them. You know, in, in, in other words, I just did a book, comes out in a few weeks, on, on different aspects of Trump administration. And I talked to a bunch of people, including some people who were former U.S. attorneys and former FBI people. And they said, oh, yeah, we knew Trump because he was involved in, you know, corruption or he was involved in investigations or he was involved in even mob things in Atlantic City that put him on their radar. Everybody knew that. The Times, of course, did this great story on the sort of history of fraud. Letitia James's suit today goes back to, I guess, 2011, something like that. Trump used to like to tell this story about the woman and the snake and, you know, that, you know, that's, that's, you know, who I am or whatever, whatever, whatever the punchline of the story was. They all knew and thought, well, we'll, we'll take advantage of it as long as we can. And once those things manifest themselves, we'll be able to get out. And you know, in some respects, that seems to be the modus operandi at the center of your book, at the center of the way a lot of these law firms work, which is there's a lot of shady stuff out there. That's why people need lawyers. We'll take advantage of it as much as we can. We'll get paid and we'll step back because we're lawyers and we know exactly where the minefields are and not allow ourselves to get tainted by the things that actually paid our bills. My only quibble with that construction is that I think in Jones Day's case, they maybe misjudged that a little bit. And I, I think certainly in terms of the, the internal dynamics at the firm, and they faced a huge and I think probably unprecedented backlash from not just some of their, the millennials who you know are accustomed to speaking up, but people, very senior partners who some of whom quit in disgust. And so I think they're 
I think Jones Day may have kind of overestimated the leaders of the firm, at least overestimated their abilities to navigate that minefield without, you know, explosions hurting them. I certainly think that these days, Jones Day, fairly or unfairly or rightly or wrongly, has developed a reputation. I mean, the, the work they've done for Trump has overshadowed decades of work that they did, you know, representing some of America's largest companies. So I, I found it really interesting to see how the kind of interplay of those, you know, the reputational concerns on the one hand, the desire or the feeling that they needed to stick with the client no matter what period on the other. Uh, and those things have, there's a lot of tension between those two competing goals. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of history too. I mean, Jones Day is a Cleveland-based firm. The reason there was a business in Cleveland at the time it was founded was that Standard Oil was founded in Cleveland. And this was the beginning, not just of the U.S. oil industry, but of global multinational corporations as we knew them. They made that kind of thing possible. And Standard Oil in those days was not exactly pure as the driven snow. And, you know, that's a long tradition. I remember vividly my, myself a few years after I got out of college and I was walking down Madison Avenue and I ran into a guy I went to college with who was one of the smartest guys in college. And I was like, hey, how are you doing? And he's like, and, and I'd heard he was a lawyer at one of these law firms. And he said, um, I'm going to jail. And I was like, what? And it turned out he had been a lawyer for Ivan Bosky, and you know that he had been enabling some of the nasty stuff that was going on in the, I guess, the late '80s. It's not a new story, is it? This playing at the edges and trying to have it both ways with the law is kind of how a lot of these firms have operated for a century. Yeah, although I think that it is intensified in the past couple of decades. And I think that there, you can look at the data on the concentration of size and money at the, at the world's largest law firms. And it is much more concentrated at the top now than it's ever been before. And I think that, that the pressure to continue expanding and to continue hiring while also competing to pay out, especially the partners, more and more money so that they don't go to rival firms. And I think that has reached that's been at a fever pitch now that would have been a pretty unimaginable 40 or 50 years ago. And there are a lot of attendant consequences of that arms race, and namely the Bay, that there's much greater desperation, appetite for taking on representations and providing services that would not have been quite as attractive was there not such a crushing mandate to keep keep, keep the cycle spinning. Yeah. Now, you know, for Donald Trump, that's a particular problem. You know, of course, as you watch the news today or or appear in media, one of the stories is we've never seen this with the president of the United States. But I think you could fairly argue that we've seldom seen an individual in as much different kinds of legal peril as Donald Trump is right now. And he doesn't just need a good lawyer. He doesn't just need a good law firm. He needs many. And he's got the Tish James case, and he's got the Fulton County case, and he's got whatever case may be brought around January 6th, and he's got now the 
the case with the theft of classified information. And we don't know the other cases that are out there. And yet he's burned a lot of bridges here. This planet of lawyers that you've written about here is not beating a path to his door any longer. What does that bode for his future, do you think? I can't tell you the number of times that I have been completely misjudged what's going to happen with Trump. I mean, I've predicted, at least privately to myself or with friends or family, okay, this is the one they're going to get him on. Like, he's the evidence seems clear. I just don't see a way out. And I've been wrong every single time. And, and so have many pundits and many reporters. And so I don't know. I, I certainly, look, I mean, I think all else being equal, you're generally better off with a good lawyer and you're generally better off with multiple good lawyers than you are without them. And I would say that uh, like, I think that his inability to retain many high profile or high, highly qualified lawyers is, that's not good for him. But again, I, I personally have misjudged this stuff so many times in the past. And I think there's a political question that I don't really feel like I have my arms around entirely that involves kind of the appetite of different government agencies to actually bring cases against him, which I think is a huge wild card. But look, I mean, his normal strategy in when he has faced litigation and investigations in the past is to delay, 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 just kick the can down the road. And I think with Tish James, that is, she's really thought this through, I think, and I think has a kind of strategy that she is preparing to roll out here that anticipates certainly Trump's MO in the past of doing this. And I, I don't know, you know, it's going to depend a lot on the judge in the case and, and, and the evidence in the case, obviously. But I do think this is certainly a Trump right now faces a greater multitude of serious legal threats than at any point in his life, I think. And, but how will that turn out? I have no idea. How's it going to turn out for the lawyers? McGann was, t- was talking to Mueller, but in a bunch of these cases, there is, uh, uh, you know, there's a uh, privilege that goes to attorney-client discussions, but it doesn't pertain in the case of crime or fraud, right? So are some of these people in the crosshairs? Yeah, I think certainly some of them are in the crosshairs. I don't know. This is dicey territory, right? Like there's the last place any lawyer ever wants to be is in criminal jeopardy, him or herself. We're seeing that. And we frankly, we've seen this over the years with people who work with Trump and that they're is often, not often, but there are on multiple occasions have been cases where the people who have been his legal counselors have themselves ended up in trouble. And and, and frankly, that's something that McGahn, I think, was very concerned about when he was at the White House. And that's part of the thing that drove him and Trump apart. And it drove him, McGahn, to cooperate with Mueller, among other things. So you've got to imagine that any lawyer currently or recently having signed on with Trump or kind of thinking about whether to sign on with him these cases and the potential criminal liability associated with some of the work that Trump might want you to do. I mean, that's got to be front and center, right? I'm not a lawyer, but I cannot imagine anyone at this point who would be, choose to represent him would not be thinking very seriously about some of the kind of accompanying risks of doing that. Yeah, no kidding. Particularly since some of his lawyers are not of the caliber of the type you talk about in this book, right? So some of them are among the, the very worst well, look, I, you know, it could go on and on. The timing of your book is brilliant. The timing of this conversation is pretty good. I'm real grateful that you could spend the time. I really encourage people to go out and get Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice. 
I could make a big case for it. I don't have to go pick up the newspaper, look at Twitter today. This could not be more central to understanding what's going on. It's a brilliantly well-written book. Congratulations, David. Thank you for joining us. Uh, And thanks to everybody for joining in. Thanks and bye-bye.